0: The last two speakers, Drs. Robert Haddad and Ezra Kuhn, as mentioned by Dr. Burtness, presented at ASCO last year two sentinel papers on induction chemotherapy in locally advanced disease. And to begin, I met with Dr. Haddad, who started out by providing an overview of this issue.
1: Induction chemotherapy obviously refers to the use of chemotherapy before definitive therapy, and often it's before concurrent chemoradiation. And induction chemotherapy in the United States, the regimen that has the most track record is TPF, and that's the combination of docetaxel, cisplatinum, and 5-FU. That's the TAX324 study that we published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2006 that led to the FDA approval of docetaxel in head and neck cancer. There's also the European TPF study, TAX-323. There's also a gore European trial. So if you look at the first question about what is the—if you use induction, what is the best induction regimen to use? I think everyone agrees in 2012 that TPF is the standard induction chemotherapy regimen, and it's consistently been shown to be superior to PF, so if you are a believer in, before we get to the whether you should use induction or not, if you believe in induction, you should use TPF, you should not use PF.
0: So what do we know about longer-term outcomes with this strategy?
1: Up until ASCO this year, the question had been wide open. There have been many studies that looked at induction only, but there was never been a study comparing sequential to concurrent chemo radiotherapy, which is really what would answer this question. So two years ago in ASCO, Dr. Paniella from Italy presented a phase two study comparing sequential chemoradiotherapy to concurrent chemoradiotherapy, again using the docetaxel PF, the TPF regimen. That study showed that TPF followed by chemo RT was better than chemo RT when it comes to response rate. There was a clear signal of benefit, and that led that Italian group to proceed with a phase three study that has not been presented yet. What was presented this year in ASCO are two major studies. Ours is the Paradigm study and the University of Chicago study, which is the DECIDE trial. So I think it's relevant to review some of these two studies because they really teach us a lot about what happened in the field in the past 10 years. There are some common themes between these two trials. So these two trials compared sequential chemoradiotherapy to concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And both of these studies in the sequential arm, TPF was used, so docetaxel, platinum-5-FU was used. I'm gonna start with Paradigm, which is our study. In the Paradigm study, patients were randomized to receive either TPF followed by chemoradiotherapy or arm B, concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And the arm A, induction arm, three cycles of chemotherapy will be given and then concurrent chemoradiation in R&B, upfront concurrent chemoradiation. Patients entered that study if they had stage 4 or stage 3 disease, but most of the patients, more than 85%, were stage 4, locally advanced, non-metastatic. Those are previously untreated patients, and they could have oropharynx, hypopharynx, larynx, or oral cavity cancer if it's deemed to be unresectable. This study was built and planned to treat 330 patients but it did not finish accrual and closed early at 145 patients. And when we looked at the what we presented in ASCO this year is the primary endpoint and secondary endpoint of overall survival and progression-free survival. And for those endpoints, there was no difference between arm A and arm B. The survival was equivalent in both of these arms. In this particular study, which obviously now will not finish accrual, there's no advantage of adding induction chemotherapy before concurrent chemoradiotherapy. The major deficiencies in the paradigm trial and also in the DECIDE trial is that these studies were built making an assumption that concurrent chemoradiotherapy had a survival of 55%, and the induction arms were meant to improve that to 70%. What happened since these studies were designed and built and started is that the survival of head and neck cancer has dramatically improved because of HPV, the human papilloma virus. So both of these two studies showed that the concurrent chemo RT arm did extremely well with a cure rate around 70%, which makes it impossible to beat that arm. These two studies did not stratify for HPV, which is what every study does right now in 2013. So what happens by the time these studies were designed, built, and executed, the field has dramatically changed. And we're going to talk about this later, about HPV, that made it to a point where the assumptions that were made when these two trials were built are not valid anymore in 2013. The concurrent arm did very well, and it obviously is very difficult to beat an arm that has performed so well in a patient population that's primarily made of HPV-positive patients because this is the majority of patients in this country.
0: I interviewed Dr. Cohn for this program, but I'm curious about your take on the DECIDE trial.
1: The DECIDE trial had a similar design with some few differences. In the DECIDE trial, only two cycles of induction were used, not three, but also the DECIDE only allowed patients with N2 and N3 disease. It did not allow patients with less volume disease. For example, if you had a T4N1 you were not allowed into the side. It took primarily patients who the Chicago group felt were at the highest risk of distant Mets and thus potentially could benefit from induction chemotherapy. And also the side suffered from slow accrual, ultimately the sample size was decreased and also that study was negative. There was no benefit of sequential versus concurrent in the primary endpoint of overall survival. So what do I do in my practice right now? And really, our practice continues to mirror the major national organizations like NCCN and others have recommended. I continue to use induction chemotherapy in those patients where I am concerned about their risk of distant failure. Those patients who have bulky neck disease, bilateral neck disease, the N2C patients, multiple ipsilateral node disease, those patients with low head and neck lymph nodes, those patients are at a very high risk of distant Mets. Patients who are very symptomatic with airway issues or swallowing issues, those patients, I strongly believe, do benefit from induction because their symptoms improve very quickly with induction. Head and neck cancer, contrary to many believe, is a highly chemo-sensitive disease. You have a patient who's having trouble swallowing, who might start having trouble breathing, You start induction chemotherapy within 24 hours. That patient in two or three days is swallowing again, is eating again, and his breathing gets better. You prepare that patient better for the concurrent chemoradiotherapy arm. So I use induction for, again, advanced nodal stage, patients who need immediate therapy, where I perceive there will be delay in starting radiation therapy, again, symptomatic patients with airway or breathing or swallowing issues those patients with low neck disease. So those are the type of patients that I personally still believe will benefit from induction chemotherapy in terms of decreasing their risk of distant failure, number one, and number two, for the symptomatic patients to give them a clear symptomatic relief immediately and thus preparing them better for the radiotherapy.
0: What are some of the objections or concerns that you hear people, including head and neck surgeons, to using induction therapy. And one question right off the bat is, what fraction of patients progress?
1: So the resistance or the concerns with induction chemotherapy have to do with what is perceived as delaying definitive therapy. So when we talk to radiation oncologists or surgeons, the concern that we often hear is, These patients need radiation therapy clearly, and when you give induction chemotherapy, you are delaying definitive therapy. There's obviously also concerns about the toxicity of these regimens. And this is a very important point because TPF is a regimen that can have significant side effects, neutropenia, mucositis, nausea, vomiting, neuropathy, ototoxicity. And these studies were done in patients with performance status of zero and one. So it's very important when induction chemotherapy is being considered that the appropriate patients are selected. Induction chemotherapy is not meant to be given to patients with performance status of two or three or those patients who have liver dysfunction or those patients who are heavy alcohol users. So there has to be really a clear understanding of the toxicity of this regimen And if the regimen is followed in a PS population of 0 and 1, with the appropriate antibiotic IV fluid support, it's fairly well tolerated. But unfortunately, that's not always followed. And I often hear about patients receiving induction chemotherapy where clearly that was not the best choice for them.
0: So if someone were to ask you, what's the chance that, first of all, the patient will tolerate therapy, but they'll have progressive disease? what's the chance that they will progress because they have so much toxicity they can't get treated?
1: That number is less than 10%.
0: Right now, roughly, what fraction of patients nationally, not so much at tertiary centers, but nationally, is it your sense are non-smokers with head and neck cancer? And what fraction of non-smokers and smokers are HPV positive?
1: What's important to mention is that this is relevant only to the oropharynx. So when we talk about larynx, hypopharynx, nasopharynx, oral cavity, those are not affected by HPV. So from the all head and neck cancers we see, close to 40% of those patients are oropharynx primary. Of all the oropharynx cancers in the United States, close to 70% are HPV positive. Majority are non-smokers. So if you take the oropharynx group, most of them are HPV positive in the U.S., Western Europe, and Canada.
0: What about smokers?
1: And most of these are non-smokers. Most of the oropharynx, HPV positive, are non-smokers.
0: What about smokers, though?
1: So the smokers, if you look at the smokers, obviously for the larynx, hypopharynx, oral cavity, vast majority of those are smokers and or drinkers, often both. For the oropharynx, essentially, I would say 20 to 30% of the oropharynx would be smokers, HPV negative. And that's the group where we need to study them more, because that's the group that doesn't do well. The HPV negative group that is a smoker is a poor prognostic group.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the pathophysiology of what happens with HPV positive disease? My understanding is that the vast majority of adults you know have been exposed to HPV why do some get oropharyngeal cancer?
1: Yeah, I, I, I wish we knew the answer to this. This is a question, obviously, we get all the time in the clinic because, as you stated, exposure to HPV is widespread. You know, people acquire HPV early in their adulthood, age 16, 17, when they become sexually active, they acquire this virus. The vast majority of people can clear this virus without a problem, and a minority would end up proceeding to Obviously, develop cancer, whether it's head and neck, cervical, anal, vaginal. So, why do some people develop head and neck cancer or other cancers because of HPV is not understood right now. Also, what is not understood is why are we seeing now this large number of patients with this entity? There was a report from the National Cancer Institute about the burden of cancer in the United States. And they actually single out HPV as an entity that is increasing in numbers clearly the past decade and where we are not doing very well in terms of really vaccinating our children because there is a vaccine for HPV that's approved for cervical cancer prevention. But the use of this vaccine in this report, it was clear that only 32% of girls between the ages of 13 and 17 are receiving the vaccine, the three doses recommended of the vaccine. Obviously, this vaccine has not been studied for head and neck cancer prevention. It was studied for cervical cancer prevention, but there's no reason for us to think that it's not gonna help with head and neck cancer prevention. And I personally talk to all my patients about the importance of vaccination. And it's very important not to think only of girls, but also to vaccinate boys.
0: When you say you talk to your patients, you mean people who already have had head and neck cancer? Right. I
1: talk about vaccinating their children.
0: Vaccinating their children. Interesting. So when you think about, though, the pathophysiology of what might be going on, any way to compare the pathophysiology of head and neck cancer to cervical cancer?
1: No, I don't know of similarities between the two, except to say that maybe the mucosa and the transitional areas might be similar at the embryonic level. But beyond that, there's really not much similarities that I know of.
0: Since the vast majority of adults have been exposed to HPV, because I've heard people talk about, is this in some way related to sexual behavior, to oral sex? But is there a relationship between sexual behavior and whether or not people actually get head and neck cancer?
1: Yeah, the Johns Hopkins group has reported on this a few years ago, in the New England Journal of Medicine. and what they This is Dr. D'Souza from Hopkins. And what they looked at is the correlation of exactly what you mentioned, the correlation with sexual behavior and head and neck cancer. And they really were able to show that patients who have history of oral sex and patients who have more than six lifetime sexual partners were at increased risk of developing head and neck cancer. And that association is made via HPV infection. I mean, HPV obviously is a sexually transmitted virus, but also what's important to understand, it's a sexually transmitted virus. It's a marker of exposure that might have happened long time ago. You could have only one exposure in your lifetime and acquire HPV. I mean, it doesn't require six lifetime sexual partners, but those are obviously findings from a major epidemiology study. Those two correlated with head and neck cancer, history of oral sex and multiple sexual partners, specifically more than six lifetime sexual partners. For the medical oncologists who are listening to this, one of the major challenges we have had in the clinic is the patient who's sitting in front of us, telling us, with his wife or her husband, telling us, asking us, how did I get this? And obviously people looking to each other and it makes it a very uncomfortable conversation and discussion. So the medical oncologist who deals with head and neck cancer, they need to be very comfortable with HPV, understanding what this virus is, how it can be acquired, and be able to have a conversation with the patient and their spouses about it. This is a marker of exposure that could have happened 20, 30 years ago. Even if your patient is a male and you're sitting with the spouse, There is no guarantee here that the male infected the woman or the woman infected the partner. This is a marker of exposure. This is the extent of what we can tell patients. The other part that we are often asked about is, do I need to use protection here? Should I be using a condom because I have an HPV-related oropharynx cancer? The answer that obviously we tell our patients and partners is there is no need to do that Because when you are in a relationship, we expect both of the members of that relationship to be exposed and infected. And there is really not evidence that using a condom, for example, would prevent head and neck cancer. If you are obviously starting a new relationship, I think it's important to disclose infection with HPV, just like you would disclose any other STD.
0: You know, I think oncologists and any doctor taking care of a cancer patient wants to try to deal with some of the anguish that people, you know, experience when the diagnosis and these really difficult questions, but it seems like it wouldn't be, even though you can, obviously we don't have all the answers, it wouldn't be very far off to say almost every adult gets exposed to it and that there's something else going on that allows it to go to the next level that we really don't understand.
1: And this is actually an excellent description because we have that same description with EBV, the Epstein-Barr virus, which causes nasopharyngeal cancer. And we've always said that acquiring EBV is not sufficient to develop nasopharyngeal. You need another stress. And that stress could be diet, like the diet that's utilized in Asia, or it could be genetics. So you're right. Many of us feel there must be a second hit to develop that cancer beyond HPV that we don't know about yet.
0: So I want to shift over into another important issue in general, head and neck cancer, which is EGFR inhibition, and my trusty scientific crew came up with an article from a journal I wasn't familiar with, Oral Oncology, that you co-authored, Overcoming Resistance to EGFR Inhibitor in Head and Neck Cancer Review of the Literature. Can you talk about some of the concepts you were trying to get into with this paper?
1: Well, you know, EGFR inhibitors are known to be active in head and neck cancer. We do have in the clinic an EGFR inhibitor that is FDA-approved for head and neck cancer. That's cetuximab. And obviously, the response rate to cetuximab is not quite high. So one of the questions that we and others have asked is, are there drugs or are there mechanisms that can overcome EGFR resistance? And this is what this paper is going over. There's obviously a new family of EGFR inhibitors known as the irreversible EGFR inhibitors. Drugs like afatNib, which is currently being studied in Phase three studies, has been studied in Phase two and showed promising response that prompted the initiation of a phase three studies. CMET inhibitors are another way of potentially overcoming EGFR resistance. So what essentially we and others have tried to do is to try to look for other mechanism to overcome EGFR resistance via using whether an irreversible EGFR inhibitor like a nib or other drugs.
0: So we've heard a lot about a nib, particularly in lung cancer a little bit, in breast cancer, obviously a TKI. What do we know about reversible EGFR TKIs like Jafitnib and erlotinib, and also the comparative effectiveness of an irreversible TKI like a nib?
1: Unfortunately, Jafitnib and erlotinib and lapatinib have been looked at and had a neck cancer, and they do not appear to have a major role, and those are drugs that are not typically used in this disease. Afatinib, on the other hand, has been studied in a phase 2 study out of University of Chicago comparing it to cetuximab, showing really promising responses, and that is what prompted the currently ongoing phase 3 study comparing afatinib to metotrexate.
0: And actually, you all had a poster in the ongoing trial session that has had the last few years looking at this, I guess it's called the LUX Head and Neck 1 trial, as you said, of fatinib versus methotrexate. Can you talk a little bit about that study, the eligibility, and also how you see people tolerating a fatinib?
1: So this is an ongoing study. It's an international phase three study. And it's a two-to-one randomization comparing nib as a single agent. This is an oral drug. And comparing that to methotrexate. Methotrexate is a known active drug in head and neck cancer. This is really an ongoing trial that we don't have much information. It's ongoing, and patients are being accrued as we speak.
0: What do we know about the tolerability of nib in general in head and neck patients?
1: It does appear to be fairly well tolerated. This is a drug that can cause diarrhea. This is a drug that can cause a skin rash, like any EGFR inhibitor. Overall, these drugs appear to be fairly well-tolerated. Okay, let's talk about
0: your cases, beginning with your 45-year-old man.
1: The first case is a young patient, a 45-year-old gentleman who... And these are patients who were seen in the clinic with a newly diagnosed squamous cell carcinoma of the right lateral tongue and an ipsilateral neck adenopathy. So this is a patient who is a smoker, who has what we call an oral tongue cancer. This is an oral cavity cancer. And one of the questions that obviously often comes up is how you manage a patient like this. It's very important for medical oncologists who treat neck cancer to really understand the difference between the oral cavity and the oropharynx. Because these sites are not treated the same. Oral cavity cancer should be treated surgically first. So this patient that we saw in the clinic was offered surgical resection, this will be a partial glossectomy with a neck dissection. And these patients often might require reconstruction and in this day and age, this is commonly done and these patients have an excellent functional outcome. They're able to speak, to swallow, and they do very well from the functional point of view. The areas where the medical oncologists obviously are called to help with patients like this is after you review the pathology report, what do you offer these patients? Do you treat them with radiation only? Do you treat them with concurrent chemoradiation? There are really clear factors that mandate concurrent chemoradiotherapy that every medical oncologist should follow. So patients who have a positive margin, it's very important these patients receive concurrent chemoradiotherapy if that margin cannot be cleared, meaning if the patient has had suboptimal surgery, they need to go back to the operating room and try to establish a negative margin. But assuming that cannot occur because of the location of the tumor or what's involved in going back in, the standard of care for patients who have a positive margin is concurrent chemoradiotherapy with bolus platinum every three weeks during radiation. The other group that clearly benefits from concurrent chemoradiotherapy after surgery are the patients who have ECS or extra capsular spread or ECE, extra capsular extension. Those patients clearly benefit from the addition of cisplatinum to radiation. So after the operation, you essentially have two groups of patients. Those patients who have positive margin and or ECE, those patients should receive concurrent chemoradiotherapy with bolus cisplatinum and radiation. This is level one evidence. Where people might disagree is, what do you do with that patient who has, for example, a negative margin, has no ECE, but has perineural invasion or lymphovascular invasion, or has two or three positive lymph nodes? This is where the situation becomes a little bit gray, because we have one study that told us that those patients also benefit from chemo RT. But also, we have the combined analysis of two large studies that showed that there was no benefit for chemotherapy for those patients. So what I do in my practice is if you have ECE on positive margin after surgery, you're getting chemo RT. If you don't have these features, but you have LVI, PNI, lymphovascular invasion, perineural invasion, or multiple lymph nodes, in my practice, I often will talk to patients about chemotherapy if they have a good performance status. Because at least we have one large phase three study, the RTOG study, 9501, that showed benefit of concurrent chemoradiotherapy for those patients. So in my practice, ECE, positive margin, you get chemo RT. LVI, PNI, multiple nodes, I will have a conversation with the patients about chemo RT if their performance status allows it.
0: What happened with this patient?
1: This patient did have... uh, extra capsular extension, and thus was recommended bolus platinum and radiation, which he received.
0: And what's his current situation?
1: He remains in remission, doing very well. So this patient had surgery first and then concurrent chemoradiotherapy.
0: I'm guessing this man was presented at an interdisciplinary conference at your place, something I'm not sure happens that much in the community, particularly in terms of having a head and neck surgeon present.
1: I will have to agree with you. I don't personally think that head and neck cancer is the type of cancer that should be treated outside of a cancer center, given the complexity of the treatment and what's involved, both on the acute and long-term. But unfortunately, the situation is kind of, we have to live with reality. The vast majority of these patients are not being treated in the cancer center. They are going to a community hospital. And having a surgeon, so if you're not, in a multi-D aspect, if you're not in a multi-D clinic, I think it's important to identify surgeons who have interest in head and neck cancer. Surgeons who do this for a living, who do more than one or two surgeries every six months, that do this on a regular basis. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, chemotherapy and radiation does not salvage a bad surgery. You cannot count on chemo and radiation to salvage a bad operation. So it's very important that the surgeon who's doing surgery understands what's the negative margin is and what's the right surgery to do and how to address the neck and what kind of a neck dissection to do. And even though you might not have always access to a multi-D clinic, but at least having access to a surgeon that understands the complexity of this treatment is important.
0: Let's go to your 50-year-old man.
1: So this is another young patient. This is a typical age for patients with HPV-related oropharynx cancer. This is a patient who has a stage four A. This is a T3N2A disease. And, you know, this is a patient that, in our place, would have a conversation about the role of sequential or concurrent chemoradiotherapy.
0: Now, just out of curiosity, did this particular patient, at the time you all were trying to figure out what to do, you had his HPV status? Yes.
1: Is that sort of like,
0: you know, ER and HER2 and breast cancer, you get it before you make a decision? Exactly.
1: Our pathology lab checks HPV on every patient with oropharynx cancer. So we don't even have to ask for it. It gets done on every patient. And again, this is a patient that is a young patient, non-smoker who has locally advanced disease. This is a patient, in my mind, who has two treatment options. This patient can be treated with concurrent chemoradiotherapy or sequential chemoradiotherapy. And this patient will do well with either approach. So a treat is gonna come down to the experience of the center treating that patient. Are they comfortable with induction chemotherapy to utilize it? But if they give this patient bolus, platinum, and radiation, it's a perfectly reasonable approach and is a standard of care for a patient like this. And again, the advantage and disadvantage of each approach we've discussed before, induction chemotherapy does increase the time of the treatment by three months, and it does have its own side effects. Now, what's really, I think, important to discuss in a case like this is the role of surgery. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, robotic surgery is making a really strong return in the field of head and neck cancer. It is an FDA approved modality now, robotic surgery. And there will be studies looking at robotic surgery in a more of a cooperative groups. But this is a patient that in many cancer centers in the United States today will be talked to about surgery. And people that would operate on a patient like this, they're essentially the reason they will recommend surgery is because it does give you more pathological information on this, it gives you the exact staging. Is this an N2A, an N2B, an N2C patient? Is this patient have extra extension? So it might allow you to further refine what do you give that patient after surgery. It obviously might also allow you to give less radiation because as you know, the post operative dose of radiation is less than the definitive dose. So I would tell you that this is a patient that in Boston, where I work, will get concurrent chemoradiotherapy, but in many other places, this is a patient where surgery will be discussed with a patient like this, and then after surgery, this patient will have a conversation about radiation or chemoradiation, depending on the pathological findings.
0: So what actually happened with this patient?
1: For us, this patient was treated with concurrent chemoradiotherapy, and it's done very well. It did not require a neck dissection, because he achieved a complete response to treatment. One of the major questions that we are asked to answer at the end of chemo radiation is who are the patients who need a neck dissection? Now, very important again for the medical oncologist, when you re-image these patients, you have to wait 10 to 12 weeks to image them with a PET scan. If you do it too early, you end up with a lot of false positive, you end up with a lot of unnecessary neck dissections. So the standard recommendation is after chemo RT, you wait 10 to 12 weeks before you do a PET scan. If the PET scan shows a complete response, then you stop. If the PET scan does not show a complete response, then you recommend a neck dissection.
0: Just kind of curious, if back to our discussion before about HPV in this particular patient, what his life situation was, what kind of work he was doing, what kind of family situation, and what kind of discussion you had with him about the HPV.
1: Well, so this is a patient who has two young kids, who's a school teacher, who really married, no other comorbidities, no medical problems. And the discussion about HPV is exactly what I discussed before. This is a virus that many people acquired early on in life. And for some patients, for reasons we don't understand, they go on to develop head and neck cancer. We had discussion with the patient and his wife about HPV and what we've discussed before about the use of condoms, etc., and the use of protection, realizing that this is not an approach we would recommend. We don't think that using a condom in a couple like this would be helpful or beneficial. The patient here obviously is a male. So for the female, we talk to her about cervical pap smears because she needs to have those anyway, whether her husband has HPV or not. This is standard of care. When it's the other way around, it's more difficult because for males, there's not a good way to check for HPV. So if your patient is a female, and you're talking to the husband or the partner who is male, there's not a good way to check HPV in that patient. Obviously, people are looking at saliva as a way of detecting HPV, but that's really research and experimental. So this is the type of conversation we had with this particular patient.
0: And did that sort of sit well with them?
1: With this particular patient, it was fine. But I will tell you that we are seeing marital problems because of this. Hmm. And I don't think this is very well reported right now but we are clearly seeing situations where there have been marital problems because of HPV.
0: I mean, that certainly is not surprising. Yeah. Let's talk about your 59-year-old patient with laryngeal cancer.
1: Yeah, so this is a patient who was treated previously with concurrent chemoradiotherapy for a laryngeal cancer, now unfortunately has lung metastases. Obviously, we've been talking about definitive therapy for the past hour or so, and we do very well in 2013 in treating patients with locally advanced disease. Where we don't do well in head and neck cancer is when we have metastatic disease. Those patients with metastatic or recurrent disease, this is where there is tremendous need to look for new drugs and new agents. This is where we really don't do very well with our patients. In this particular patient who is now being treated in the first-line recurrent setting, the approach that we have taken is to focus on experimental therapy. So this is a situation where we look at experimental therapy for patients, phase one, phase two, phase three studies. But obviously the average medical oncologist is not gonna have access to a clinical trial all the time. So some of the options available to those oncologists would be to look, for example, at the extreme regimen. Now the extreme regimen is a regimen that compared platinum-5-FU to platinum-5-FU cetuximab. This is a phase three study that showed that the triplet of platinum-5-FU cetuximab improved survival by three months, seven months versus 10 months. These are patients who are being treated for the first line recurrent setting. So this would be an option for this patient, what's known as the extreme regimen, it's a European study comparing triplet to doublet. The other option for this patient would be to use a platinum and a taxane, or a taxane as a single agent. In treating patients with recurrent head and neck cancer, if the patient is symptomatic, and you're trying to alleviate symptoms, a doublet is often better than a single agent because with a doublet, you can get a higher response rate, and response rate would alleviate some of the symptoms these patients might have. If patients are asymptomatic, then there is no benefit of a doublet versus a single agent in terms of overall survival. So the role of palliative chemotherapy in a patient like this, obviously, it's for palliation. We know that based on recent study that a triplet with a cetuximab PF is better than PF, so that would be an option for patients. When you are dealing with a patient with an entity called the platinum refractory head and neck cancer, those are patients who are progressing on a platinum. For those patients, if they have not seen an EGFR inhibitor yet, that will be an option for them because we have an indication of cetuximab in this country for platinum refractory head and neck cancer. As a single agent, gives you a response rate of 10%. In my mind, those patients with platinum refractory head and neck cancer or any patients with a recurrent head and neck cancer should be considered for a clinical trial because these patients don't do well. And this is a situation where we only had one drug approved in the past 30 years and head and neck cancer. So we do need to look for new drugs for this disease. And I would encourage people to refer patients to clinical trial, if at all possible.
0: So what happened with this patient? First of all, was the patient symptomatic?
1: This patient was not symptomatic because he wanted to be treated. And we offered him participation in one of the clinical trials we have ongoing at the moment, and he elected to participate. What agent? He was enrolled on a trial with carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and an antiviral agent called Riolysin. There's an ongoing phase three national trial comparing this combination to carboplatinum paclitaxel.
0: Any trials out there or any interest in immune-based therapy for head and neck cancer? I think everybody was very struck at ASCO, obviously with the anti-PD-1 data, but buried in there, a part of that were some pretty interesting results with squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, which makes me think a little bit about head and neck. Has that been looked at?
1: It's actually being looked at at the moment. There is a large phase one slash two studies allowing all types of cancers to be included, and there are separate cohorts for HPV positive and HPV negative metastatic disease. So that actually is being looked at at the moment. That's
0: anti-PD-1? Correct. Interesting. Also, this patient, although unfortunately with metastatic disease, had laryngeal cancer. I'm curious what's going on right now in terms of an initial primary management of laryngeal cancer.
1: So for laryngeal cancer, the standard of care for locally advanced disease continues to be concurrent chemoradiotherapy for those patients who desire organ preservation, larynx preservation. And based on the RCOG-9111 trial, concurrent chemoradiotherapy or induction chemotherapy would be options for patients with laryngeal cancer. For larynx cancer, induction chemotherapy appears to be more of an accepted method compared to other sites like oropharynx and other because of the risk for these patients to have distant metastases. Larynx cancer is unique in that those patients who have recurrent disease locally, can still be cured with an operation. You can always go back and do a laryngectomy on these patients if they have local recurrence. It's very hard to do this in the oropharynx or other sites. If you have someone with an oropharynx cancer that you've given chemo RT to, and that patient has a recurrence, it's very hard to salvage that patient with an operation. Larynx is unique in that regard. You can always or almost always go back and those patients who have had chemo RT or sequential chemo RT and now have a local recurrence you can still cure that patient with laryngectomy.
0: Now, is that because the biology is different or the anatomy?
1: It's more anatomy than biology, yeah.
0: Here's another one. Is weekly cis or carbo an option as opposed to bolus cis?
1: This is a very difficult one. My approach to this has been that if a patient is candidate for cisplatinum, that would be my initial approach to that patient meaning the young patient in good shape who has no contraindication to cisplatinum, in my practice and what I tell other people is you should be using bolus cis because this is where the data is. If you have a patient who do not tolerate this regimen, then we do have alternative regimens one can utilize.
0: Do we have data specifically to suggest that CARBO is less active?
1: We do not, and they have not been compared head to head. And so, when we try to extrapolate, obviously we don't do very well with that. Most of the data in head and neck cancer is with bolus cis. There is one study in nasopharynx cancer that showed equivalency between cis and carboplatinum, but this was specific to the nasopharynx.